Okay, Matthew chapter 7, let's begin in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye, and look, a plank is in your own eye? Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you into pieces. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who receives or asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be opened. Or what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father, who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do, or men to do to you, all, do also to them. For this is the law and, pro, and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction, and there are many who go in by it. But narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear fruit, good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And when the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on the house, that house, and it did not fall, for it was founded on the rock. But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended, the floods came, and the winds blew and beat on that house, and it fell, and great was its fall. And so it was when Jesus had ended these sayings that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. Let's pray together. Father, we have just enjoyed so much worship already, Lord, and now we want to worship you by the study of your word. Would you plant it deep in our hearts, Lord? Help each one of us to have hearts receptive to your word and what you'd have to say. Lord, we want to become more like you. So I pray, Lord, right now, all of us are praying that you, by your spirit, would help us to be shaped and made like Jesus as a result of these verses. Help us to be doers of the word, not hearers only. We commit this time to you. Pray that you'd set it aside for your holy use. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Right in the middle of this great sermon on the mount and it's as it's been said it's a mountain of its own and originally he was speaking to disciples and he was mainly focusing on disciples but we'll see by the end other people had come by to listen and they were listening in on that on the teaching there and so jesus has been speaking we've been learning about what it means to be a disciple of jesus christ it's not that we just get a name tag when we get saved and right disciple and then poof there's a process disciple means a learner and it's kind of the idea is like an apprentice you're learning alongside somebody else and disciples were very common everyone had disciples and back then of different beliefs and and philosophical uh, you know 
ideas, and the zealots had their disciples, and, you know, it was very common to have disciples, but disciples of the Lord Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords, that is such a high privilege for us to enjoy, and he wants us to learn, and not just learn, but do, and not just do, but glorify him, and and bring glory to him with our lives. He has called us salt, he has called us light, he has called us to do our works before men that they may glorify our Father who is in heaven. So today as we finish out this great sermon on the mount, we're going to be looking at some very specific things. And he, he doesn't just throw everything out there by accident. There's a specific reason why he unfolds these things in the order in which he unfolds them and how they're connected and so forth. But he's going to, we're going to see all about judging. We're going to see how, how willing God is to answer prayer we're going to see how we, sh- we should treat people. We're going to see that the road to heaven is difficult and, and narrow. And also uh, how to have discernment and in, in related to religious leaders and others. And also, lastly, how to prepare for future storms in life. So there's so much here. So let's get right into it. Verse 1, judge not that you be not judged. One of the most quoted scriptures in this world. Every unbeliever, it almost seems, becomes an instant Bible scholar on judging. And they can quote this verse so quick that it's like, it's like they have holsters right here with guns. And they have their judge not guns here. And they're just like, before you know it, there's judge not, let's be judged. You know, boom. It's just, it's fast. And they just will say it right away. Don't judge. They know that. Judge not, lest you be judged. Doesn't the Bible say you should not judge? So what are you doing <laughs> in my life, talking to me about the Lord and talking to me about my, my decision-making and, and so forth? One of the most common sayings today, especially among young people, is don't judge me, which has got abbreviated to don't judge. And, you know, the, it's kind of evolved into, you know, to basically saying don't think I'm weird. So before you do something weird you say, don't judge me. You know, don't think I'm weird or whatever. And that's fine. But that's not what its origin is. And that's not where, when people are serious about uh, deflecting our message of the gospel and getting it away from them so they don't have to consider it and they don't stop long enough to think about eternal things. That's kind of the idea, to keep going at such a speed and be entertained with so many things and checking our status updates 10,000 times a day and all these things to fill our minds with these things, we don't have time to think about eternal things until a relative gets sick, until they're on their deathbed. And now the unbeliever has to think about where this person's going to go. And it reminds them of where they, maybe they don't know where they're going to go. Maybe you're here today. Someone invited you here, and you have no idea where you're going to go if you were to die right now. And I want to tell you today that you're going to have that invitation to to know for sure where you're going to be if you were to die today. None of us are guaranteed tomorrow. Recently, we had someone get murdered in cold blood, a newscaster, while it was on the air. I mean, none of us knows when our day is coming. And we can be wrong in a lot of things in life, but we must, must not be wrong with our eternal destiny and be ready and have reservations and be ready to go at any time. So what they mean is, when they, when they say, don't judge me, they, they don't want anyone to speak regarding their lives. They don't want anyone saying what they're doing is wrong. Now, obviously, that, that's a little bit different than what God has in mind as you study the Bible. So is that what Jesus really meant? Because if he did, he sure didn't lead by example. Jesus called out sin. Remember the lady caught in the very act of adultery? He said, go and sin no more. He judged. He made, an, he, he made a statement about this person's behavior. But really, more so, it's, this is talking about things that we, have, we don't have a capacity to do well. Like, know the full picture. This is the idea is being a judge and the kind of judge which renders a judgment at the end of a trial. Not a jury trial, but a, just a judge that makes that decision. Well, you're, you're, you're basically saying this person it's like as if they've already been through, they've been indicted, they've been gone through the whole process, and you know the outcome and how it's going to be, and you have that much information that you can successfully know their hearts, know their motivation, know where they're eventually going to end up and how the whole thing will, will, will uh, uh, transpire. We don't have that much information. 
We're really bad at that, by the way. I don't know if you know from experience. I know I do. Um, I'm often wrong in the past when I have judged people's hearts and judged their motives. So what does it mean to judge? Some have said we can, cannot judge motives, ultimate destinies, and have a complete picture of someone's life. And I think that's a great place to start. But ultimately, it's I'm not responsible for that person's life. I can't judge another man's servant. They belong to God, and ultimately, God's going to render a decision on their life. He's the one in charge of their lives. When we take the place of being in charge of their life and, and making pronouncements on their life related to their eternal destiny or what what's in their heart, we can't know those things. And so um, he's, he's revealing that. And he gets more specific. Notice in verses 2 and 3, he says, For with what judgment, or for with what judgment you judge, you will be judged and with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Notice he says, with what judgment? And he also says, measure, the measure you use. That's a quantitative word. It's, it's saying that there's uh, the amount of judgment that we use. Not only do we have to have the right kind of judgment, and there's certain kinds that we can never do, but we have to have the right amount. And he says, whatever we dole out, so to speak, it'll be doled back to us. And I believe Jesus is talking about the difference between unrighteous and righteous judgment. Unrighteous judgment is self-righteous, hypocritical judgment. It's based on unreliable information, especially appearance, how we see the situation from our vantage point, and, and it's ungodly. And if we use that kind of judgment, we're sinning. He says that verse 1, judge not. He tells us not do it. It's, it's sinful for us to do that. So he calls us to judge righteously. Where does it say that we're supposed to judge righteously? John chapter 7, verse 24, Jesus said, Do not judge according to appearance, but judge with righteous judgment. So we have to have, and he's going to get into it in a moment, we have to have our hearts right, we have to have everything in line related to that specific area, no big problems in our, excuse me, with our lives in that area, and, and, and looking at it as God would look at it and so forth, there are times where he calls us to make righteous judgment. But notice he speaks of the ineffective nature of hypocritical judgment in verses 3 and 4. He says, And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, Let me remove the, the speck from your eye, and look, and look, a plank is in your own eye. Especially back in that time when you worked with wood, they probably didn't have safety glasses back then. Uh, you know, when you're working with wood, I can notice Gary laughed the most on that, um, you, you would get specks of wood or sawdust or maybe a splinter in your eye. You couldn't just go up to a mirror and get it out yourself. The mirrors back then didn't have glass like we have now. They would polish brass. And they could see a vague reflection, but, and that's what he's talking about in 1 Corinthians 13 when he says we see through a glass darkly because it wasn't the kind of mirror. You couldn't just go up to a mirror and go and try to get it up. By the way, I always ask my sisters growing up, why do you, why do you open your mouth when you do that? It's like, a, it's like this hinge. Why do, you, why do you women do that? It doesn't stretch your face out anymore. I used just to sit there just ask my sisters, you're, you're putting on makeup, but you're looking like a fish. You know, and they got me out of their room. That was, that was kind of how it went. That was the next thing. Where was I? Oh, yeah, so you're trying to get a speck of wood out of your eye. You couldn't go to a mirror and go and look and go, and, you know, even do with the mouth, you know, and you couldn't get that thing out. You couldn't see well enough. So you are completely dependent upon someone else helping you. To come over and look at your eye, open it up, and then get that thing out. It's a very common thing. This is, this is not just some story thing he makes up. This is very common. So they would need help. And what Jesus is saying is we can't be that person to help if we have a bigger problem than they do in the same area. And, and he, you know, the person does need help. He does need help. So he's saying, if you come at someone, they have a little splinter in their eye, and you're coming at them with a two-by-four, how effective are you going to be in getting that speck out? I used to joke with my wife when we were newly married, you know, and saying, I could, get, I could use my plank so well, I could just like, 
and just get that speck out from a long ways away. And, you know, she didn't buy it just like you're not. But he says it's impossible to do that because we are hypocrites. A hypocrite, those of you that are new to the Bible, a hypocrite means an actor, someone that's acting and putting on a show. Romans chapter 2, verse 1, Paul tells us by the Spirit, Therefore you, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge. For in whatever you judge another, you condemn yourself. For you who judge practice the same things. Why do other people's sins bother us so much? Why does it bother? Why, do they, it just, why aren't we bothered by our own sin as much as we are with other people's sins at times? And as been said, our sin looks the worst on other people. Because usually what we're irritated about, their particular shortcoming or their sin that they struggle with, usually we struggle with the very same thing. We're, we're too, we know it. We're, we're, we're close to it. We have a lot of experience with it. The reason why we can recognize it so well is because we've seen it in our own lives for so long. And he says, you are, in, you are incapable of helping your brother help with this certain situation when you haven't dealt with the very same situation first. And so he says we're supposed to not do it hypocritically. We have to ask ourselves honestly before we help a person related to a specific area. How am I doing in that area right now? Maybe it might be helpful to ask your spouse or a good close friend and you're sensing you're supposed to exhort because we are supposed to exhort other believers in a certain area to ask your spouse or ask someone that will tell you the truth, how am I doing in this area? I'm about to blast this guy in this specific area. Not really, not blast, but I'm about to go and talk to him. Do I have anything? Because we all have blinders. We all have blind spots in our lives. That's why we need healthy people around us that will tell us the truth. I'm so thankful for the leaders and the people that God has placed in my life that are not afraid to tell me the truth. It's, I would be foolish to set myself up uh, with no one being able to tell me the truth because I, 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 don't, I don't trust myself. But he says, verse 5, Hypocrite, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice he doesn't forbid removing your brother's speck. Did you see that? He, he could have said, first remove the plank from your own eye, and then go on your way or do something else or whatever. He says, no, then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. He doesn't say that that's wrong. He just says we need to do it the right way. We need to be un, un, uh, unhindered or not hindered in our capacity to help them. We'll actually do damage, just like someone with a two-by-four in their eye would do damage trying to get a speck of sawdust out of someone else's eye. We are supposed to exhort one another daily. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13 says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. The Bible just clearly says it right there. The deceitfulness of sin. Sin deceives. Sin deceives. And again, we have blinders. So we're dependent upon one another to kind of get, on, get in each other's grill a little bit. Sorry. Just had to be culturally relevant for a second. Um, I have flashes of that. Um, but just to get into someone's face or whatever, or get there and, and say, hey, I'm seeing this. I could be wrong. But this is what I'm seeing. I'm, I'm concerned about you. We need to be doing that daily. He says, especially as you see the day approaching, we should be doing it more and more and more. Can you be exhorted? Can someone exhort you? It's hard to do, isn't it, to exhort somebody else? Which is harder, exhorting someone else or receiving exhortation? See, it's a mixed bag because it depends on who you are. It depends on what you're dealing with, your heart, how you are wired for some people, it's a lot easier to exhort other people. They love it, unfortunately, too much. But there's some people that have a hard time receiving it. They can't. It's really difficult. There are people that I have to kind of tiptoe around and be real gentle and delicate and just come in and just say the right words at the right time, and then they can receive it. And I know that. And it would be much better for me and for them if that could just clearly say, and I don't mean rudely, but if I could just clearly say, you know, this is the situation as I see it and, and have them be able to 
you know, accept it and thank me for it or, or whatever. The biggest thing is just to, to repent and make those changes. The godliest people I know excel at both exhorting and receiving exhortation. They excel in it. They're not just a, okay. They excel in it. Some of you I've exhorted and it hasn't gone over very well. Some of you have exhorted it's gone great. Most of the time it's great. Sometimes not so great. I love you. Sometimes I'll tell you I love you before I do it. Make sure you know I love you, right? You know I love you, right? That might be your cue that something might be coming. But uh, you know I love you, right? I have a pastor friend that used to do that all the time. You know I love you, right? And I'm like, okay, hit me. Hit me. Hit me. I want it. Now, Jesus switches here from judging to discerning in verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine, lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So it's to discern dogs and the pigs. Discern them. Know who they are. Those people that are adamantly opposed to our holy supernaturally set apart gospel message that's sharper than any two-edged sword that is the power of God and the salvation for those who believe. Those, that message, and they're adamantly opposed, you've shared, you've shared, you've shared, you've shared, then there's a time where you take, shake off the dust from your feet and, and you just leave, leave them to God. Does that mean that God's given up on them? No. He may bring other believers. He may lead you to come back later down the road. But how much time do we waste arguing and arguing and trying to convince this person that has a, their heart has zero openness to the gospel? How many unbelievers are we not talking to right now? We're not, we're not being able to talk to them and share our faith with them. The ones that are receptive and they are open because we're, we're just getting so bogged down on this type of person. He says, use discernment. Don't do that. And he said there's a danger. I don't know if you caught that at the end of verse 6. He said they might turn and tear you in pieces. We miss that when we quote this verse. I don't know if he's speaking of a wild boar. Those, those things can tear you into pieces. But when we don't cut bait, so to speak, in our sharing of our faith, when, we, when the Spirit's clearly saying we need to cut bait, we need to move on, and we just keep going, we keep going, he's giving us a warning here that we're in danger somehow. And he, and he gives us these warnings for us to receive them. So we need to be careful. Now he continues with God's heart to bless us in verse Seven and the following, he says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Now, I want you to know that all those verbs there, it's not going to mean that much in terms of significance, but I just want you to know that these are present tense verbs that are in, uh, they're in a form that demonstrates that they're a command. It's not optional. He's not saying, you know, if I encourage you. I mean, if you don't, you don't. But I encourage you to ask and to knock and to seek and, and, and all these things. But if you don't, you know, well, that's really up your, your choice. He's saying, no, I'm commanding you. And it's literally in the Greek. It's, it's, it's literally ask and keep on asking. Seek and keep on seeking. Knock and keep on knocking. Keep asking. And then he gives this great example of his heart. He says, For everyone who asks receives, and he who seeks finds, and to him who knocks it will be open. For what man is there among you who, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly Father who is in heaven give good things to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. And he just reveals his great heart. Maybe he's not giving you what you've been asking for because it's not best for you. But he still asks you, maybe it's not best for you at the moment, but maybe it will eventually be best for you. And he just says, keep asking, keep knocking. He's commanding us, church, to not give up asking, not giving up. Maybe that's a special word for someone here today. You have given up on asking him for something that's very important to you, you've given up. And he says, you, you don't have that luxury. I'm commanding you to continue to ask and to knock because when I'm in the process of seeking him, there's all kinds of things that happen in my life and in prayer. He's maybe answering other prayers that are connected to your requests. So there's, a, there's something that happens in me when I keep seeking him, when I keep honoring him with my faith. And he says, 
yes, you're, you're comparatively, to me, obviously evil. You are evil. I, I, and you, you do these things for your kids. Why wouldn't you think I would do something for you, something that you need? Because obviously these requests are things that they needed. You know, they're asking for bread. They're, you know, they're, they're, they're asking for fish. This is not like asking for an Xbox, you know, asking for, you know. I mean, it's their, their, their needs. And sometimes we are so anxious about, and he went over this last week when, when we looked at worrying and so forth. He wants us to trust his father's heart. Because if you know how to do it, you know how to give good gifts, I know how to give, give good gifts. And my heart is infinitely better than yours. And I have infinite power to be able to uh, fulfill that or make that happen. He says all of, the, all of that, verse 12, he says, with, with all of that, verse 12 says, Whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. So this sums up the whole law. And it's been called the golden rule. And it existed in, in a certain form before Christ and other religions and other philosophies. I want to read a quote to you. Every other form of this basic principle had been given in purely negative terms and is found in the literature of almost every major religion and philosophical system. The Jewish rabbi Hillel said, what is hateful to to yourself, do not to someone else. So he changed it around brilliantly. All the other versions of it was the negative. But he changes it around to, to, to say, make sure that you, you know, he's not saying just make sure that you don't treat someone poorly just as you don't want to be treated poorly. He's saying the good things you want people to do to you, do to them. Totally change it around. Change it into an expression of love. Doing proactive things to help people, to serve people, to love people. But why does he connect that to the previous verses? Notice the word, therefore, in verse 12. He connects you, us coming to him and asking, seeking, knocking, and so forth. He connects that to us doing what's good for others and, have, and treating them in, in, in a wonderful way or in wonderful ways that how we would want to be treated. Well, what's the connection? The connection is his heart. We should have the same heart that he wants to bless. He wants to give good gifts. He wants to bless people. He wants to bless us as children, and thus he wants us to do good to other men too, just because he is that way. And it's, it's a beautiful picture of the character of, of God. Sometimes it's hard to do that because we, we don't want to. Is there... They've been a certain way, and, you know, we're, we just kind of, it's hard for us to say, you know, they've done that sin, and we know that we're supposed to separate the sinner from the sin, and it's hard to do. Even C.S. Lewis said it was rubbish at first when he first heard that, love the sinner and hate the sin, and then he said, the Lord just gave me this great answer. He said, well, that's quite easy for you because you treat yourself that way all the time. You separate the sin from the sinner all day long, so why can't you do that with other people? And, and do to them as you would have them do to you. Then he goes further. Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. We have to kind of rewire the way that we think. In our culture and in our flesh, we think that popular equals good, easy equals better. Now, it wasn't, it was called an easy bake oven. It wasn't a hard bake oven, you know. And I never got as many of those treats as I should have in the people that had those ovens. I'm just telling you. I would have brought light bulbs. Oh, the light bulb's getting weak. You know, I'll buy you light bulbs. I want some of those treats. Still dealing with it to this day. But we just think of roads. Let's think of, okay, the 580 corridor. I want you to picture the 580 corridor without traffic. I know that's hard to imagine. But there's like seven lanes or whatever, and it's all smooth, and it's really wide, and it's going towards what you think is the Bay Area. And then over on the side, way over in the fields over there, you see this dirt road that has big old holes in it, and it's, there's rocks next to it. There's like, kind of like a mountain ridge on either side, not a mountain ridge, but, you know, rocks and dangerous things, and it's very, very difficult. You can't see where it's going, and you're looking at it, and, you're, and the obvious answer is, well, I'm going to take the freeway. Why would, I, why would I take my Camry 
over dirt roads and, and, and you know, that, why would, it looks hard. It looks narrow. Narrowness means it's, it's difficult. Narrowness means it's dangerous. Narrowness means that it's a struggle and I might not make it and all these things. So you would take, not knowing where you're going, you would just take the 580, the, all these lanes that are really broad, smooth, smooth sailing, and you would take that. That's a good word picture for us. Because the road, because the 580 in that context, that's leading over a cliff right into the flames of hell. So it's great and it's wonderful. The ride is smooth and it's comfortable while you're on it. It's not really. We know that the, the, the way of the transgressor is hard and sin is pleasurable for a season. But generally, they are thinking this is the easier way, the best choice, the obvious choice. Why would I go to this other one? Well, because it leads to the, where you want to go. It leads to the Bay Area, even though it's hard and difficult. Better go through something difficult and hard and everything, but in, instead of taking you know, the easier way and then going off a cliff into fire, into the lake of, of fire. So he says, and you know, unbelievers really get mad at this. They get mad at the, that the way is narrow. And God could have made it broad, but he chose to make it narrow. It's based on righteousness, and Jesus is the only one that provides that righteousness. It's not based on our works. So it is, it is narrow. It is difficult. And he says, notice the end of verse 14, there are few who find it. Everybody thinks everyone's on the way to heaven. Oh, yeah, they went there. I'm going to heaven. I talk to people all the time. I'm on my way to heaven. What's the gospel? I don't know, but I'm on my way to heaven. Who is Jesus? I don't know. I use his name as a cuss word, but I don't know. I mean, he was a historical figure, but there's people that are clueless, but we have to be able to be willing to explain to them the truth, that they are on the, they're on the road that leads to destruction. And we need God is wanting to use us to help save them from that, wide, that broad road. Aren't you glad you're on the narrow road today? I am so glad that I'm on the narrow road. He doesn't lie to us. He says difficult is the way. And we can be stumbled as a new Christian. We think it's, well, everything's supposed to go perfectly. I made the right decision and everything. It, he says it's difficult. He said that, that, that difficult is the way, and it's hard because now we're going against our sinful nature. We're going against the world's philosophy. We're going against the demonic realm. All those things we weren't going against before, and we're feeling that current. It's like going downstream in a, in a river, and you're swimming. Ever swam with a river that was moving pretty quickly? You're like, man, I'm pretty fast. <laughs> pretty fast at swimming. This is easy. And then all of a sudden you do a U-turn in that river and like, whoa, this is current. You know, I can't swim very good. That's what it's like for us as Christians. When we make that U-turn in the road of life, we have a problem with that current. But Jesus said, in this life you will face tribulation. And he says here, difficult is the way. We have to be okay with that. Well, we can okay with it in theory, but when it really comes down to suffering and all of that, he says, don't be stumbled. And he's going to get to that in a little bit. Now he picks up again the need for discernment in verse 15. Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. Some people believe that this is talking about the clothing that a shepherd would wear. They would wear a garment that was covered with wool, covered with, um, you know, that covering there, and that would designate them as a shepherd. And they're coming in sheep's clothing. They're not pretending to be a sheep. We always, you know, heard of it that way, and that could be true. So, but inwardly they're wolves, and they're going to um, destroy sheep. There's a quote uh, by a, a well-respected pastor, been in the ministry probably 50 years, and he said this. He said, "The person who believes all that he hears and accepts everyone who claims to be spiritual will experience confusion and great spiritual loss." I'll repeat it. The person who believes all that he hears and and, and it, well, let me read it correctly again here. The person who believes all that he hears and accepts everyone who claims to be spiritual will experience confusion and great spiritual loss. Just because it's real doesn't mean it's right. The magicians in Egypt could duplicate to a point those miracles there. There are great supernatural things. Just because something's supernatural does not mean it's of God. And so we have, as part of growing as a Christian, becoming more mature, is knowing how to test. And I want to provide for you three big tests related to any teacher. First test is, who is Jesus? 
Who is Jesus? Is he just a man? Is he just a prophet? Or is he God in human flesh? Has he always been eternal? In terms of, did he pre-exist before he was born as a baby? There's a, a couple of verses I want to read to you out of 1 John 4. It says, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you will know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is God. And every spirit that does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is not of God. What he's talking about is coming in the flesh. He's talking about coming in, the God-man, coming in uh, the form of a man. And, and because Gnosticism was very popular back then, which believed that, that God would never inhabit a human body because flesh is evil and he would never do that. And that was a popular teaching. But, he, but John, in 1 John, obviously wrote the Gospel of John, and he said that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. One, that chapter 1, verse 14. So the big three tests. Is Jesus, who is Jesus? Number two, we test the, the false prophet or the potential false prophet by God's word. Acts 17 is a very famous where it says that the Bereans were more fair-minded than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness and searched the scriptures daily to, to find out whether these things were so. No leader is above being tested by the word of God. No leader, you should never trust a leader so much that, that you are willing to trust them over what God's word says. God's word always is there and available and should be used in testing what people say by the scriptures. Don't just take my word for it. Check things out for yourself. And, and there's people that are so deceptive out there. They're on Christian television. They're on Christian radio. False prophets denying that Jesus is the Messiah, denying that Jesus is God in the flesh, teaching another gospel, a gospel that has nothing to do with repentance, nothing to do with believing that Jesus rose from the dead. And it's just accept Jesus and your life and let's add a little Jesus to your current life no repentance no receiving Christ and they're false teachers and they have suits on they look great their hair looks good their speech is great they use all the same terminology and they are dressed up as if they are legitimate but 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 they're not and we have to look at their fruit that's the third thing fruit he says in verse 16 you will know them by their fruits do men gather grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles even so, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Therefore, by their fruits you will know them. So God has called us to examine the fruit of every person claiming to be a religious leader or, or teacher. We need to look at the fruit of their teaching. Does it line up with Scripture? And we need to look at the fruit of their ministry not merely numbers. Numbers don't necessarily at all speak to health. Jesus was trying to wean out the crowds, trying to make them less and less. You know, the crowds are fine if it's of the Lord and Lord is adding to the church. I mean, they recounted how many thousands of people in the beginning of the book of Acts were getting saved and God was adding to the church. That's great. That's fruit and so forth. But, not, but, but we don't look at something that's big and assume that everything's right. Because there are many things that we need to look for related to fruit that have nothing to do with numbers. And you look at that person's lifestyle. Do they, do they fly around in a $650 million jet? Some of them do. Do they fly around? Do they live in mansions? Do they, do they living, are they fleecing the flock? Are they living off the people? They're jealous of my 88 Toyota truck. I know it. Now, he goes further, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wondrous wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. It says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord. Notice in verse 22, the first word of the verse, many will say to me in that day. Not just a few, many. And they're pointing to all the things they did in his name. And they're all supernatural things. Again, just because something's supernatural does not mean that the person walking in that is legitimate. 
There are people that walk in supernatural things that are completely of the, the devil and of this, you know, the, the kingdom of darkness, and we need to know that. And they're going to try to say, well, what do you mean? What, what do you mean we're not going to go to heaven? Didn't we do all these things? And notice he says, verse 23, I never knew you. I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. You talked a lot about me. You used my Bible. You did a bunch of supernatural things. But I never knew you. I never had a personal relationship with you. You've been serving yourself all this time, not serving me. And then he said another characteristic is, and this is for us to look at related to uh, unbelievers or uh, false teachers, is you who practice lawlessness. Notice the word practice. It's not every once in a while falling or struggling or whatever. This is practice lawlessness, this regular pattern that marks their lives. He says, depart from me. And that's going to happen. Now, lastly, he ends this sermon by breaking through spiritual self-deception in verses 24 through 27. He knows he's laid down a lot of content, amazing themes, beautiful, incredible instruction and he knows us disciples very well he knows we can receive it and hear it and 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 still end up self-deceived he's going to deal with it let's read how he breaks through the deception verse 24 therefore whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them i will liken him to a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain descended and the flood came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it did not fall for it was founded on the rock But everyone who hears these sayings of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain descended and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house and it fell. And great, notice that word great, and great was its fall. Unfortunately, at times we measure our spiritual health by what we know or what we believe instead of what we are currently obeying. Think about and analyze for a moment how you listen to Bible studies or sermons. Are you listening just for new information? Oh, I never knew that before. Oh, that was a, and that's great. God wants us to, to learn. He wants us to grow in our knowledge of, of him. Are you mainly going, you know, I'm learning that and I appreciate that. Or are you saying, you know what, that is so true. Amen. I believe that. And that is all that you are doing. But he wants us to go further than that. What he's really getting at is, am I doing this right now, currently? Am I obeying his word right now in this area? Whatever I've spoken about today, have you thought about those things? Do you remember this, the, the teaching last Sunday if you were here? Do you remember what, what the text was about? Do you remember what I, the topics that we covered? Did you listen to it, agree with it, and then not even check to see if you were obeying it? Not even considered fasting? Not even considered praying the Lord's Prayer as a model, not even considered uh, not doing our charitable deeds before men, or if I even do charitable deeds, were you there actively with the Lord in your privacy of your heart, having him search your heart and seeing what areas you need to repent or think about, or think about it during the week. It didn't have to be just while you were hearing the study. You see, if we just listen to it like, yeah, that was nice, and I've heard that before, but I learned a few things, and that was good, we've missed it. We are supposed to say, Am I currently obeying that, Lord? Is is there something in my life that I'm not doing related to these things? And that's why I believe God brilliantly likens the word of God in the book of James to a mirror. It's perfect. Even with the, the inferior mirrors that they had. Because what mirrors do is mirrors give you a snapshot of your current condition related to your appearance. And it's not good sometimes, let's be honest. <laughs> we get in there and, oh, good morning, you know. Um, but it gives us a, our current state. Imagine going into your bathroom. I want you to imagine this. Going into your bathroom in the morning, and you see an image of you from 10 years ago. You walk in the room, you're, and you're looking at yourself, and it's exactly you 10 years ago. Wouldn't that be nice? I would love that. I'd be thinner. I, I, I'd be a lot of other things. Less gray, don't get the just for men thing. I don't think it's going to happen. But, but think about if, if you saw an image of yourself from 20 years ago. That'd be even better. I would like that. 20 years ago, we see that image, and we're, like, we're really just blown away by it. And, and we'd be impressed with it, wouldn't it? We would, it would make us potentially feel good. But don't, don't we do that kind of with the Word of God at times? 
we were thinking about how we used to be in this area, and we're having, we're enjoying, like, yes, enjoying that I did that at that time and so forth, and we're forgetting about right now, am I doing it? You know, we hear a teaching on the Great Commission, we agree with it, we, and we see these images in, in, our, in our mind of, of us sharing our faith in the past, but today we don't. We haven't shared our faith in weeks, maybe years. But we're fine sitting in that chair, going through these verses, agreeing with it, knowing that it's true, and then we walk out completely missing the point of what God wanted to do in our lives by saying, are you doing it now? And the more we do that and get in the habit, even if we've been, I'm not condemning anyone, if you've gone through that ritual and you haven't actively gone over these things, if I'm currently obeying them right now, there's no condemnation. Just start. Start really seeking him related to anything that you see in in God's word and and am I doing it today am I doing it now that's because you don't look at a mirror for an image that happened in the past or or what it's going to be in the future you look at a mirror to look at what you are right at that moment and so that's what God's aiming at today have you thought about judging people do you judge people have you thought about giving what is holy to dogs have you thought about already you know, that you've given up asking, seeking, and knocking? Have you even thought about that yet today? And I'm not saying you have to, like, everything that we cover in the service. I'm just saying you could take that before the Lord later and bring it before him and ask him and so forth instead of just knowledge. We're not just aiming at at getting knowledge. See, the advantage for me is that I get to grapple with this thoroughly before I ever get up here. So I've done all that. I mean, I've studied the passage, but more than when that by far is it studied me and revealed things in my life that I'm ashamed of and I've repented of. And so he wants that for, for us as well. It's not limited to just Bible studies at church. Anytime he speaks to us, we need to obey him. And what he's saying in this little story, and he repeats it in, in Luke, is that when we, because we all believe in insurance, right? Geico, um, what's her name? flow flow yep we believe in insurance a lot of us have insurance but have we have we secured spiritual trial insurance or spiritual storm insurance have we have we have we secured that how do we do that by obeying god's word that's what he says in those verses he who hears those sayings of mine and does not do them is like a man who built his house upon the sand but the one that did obey his foundation was secure. So right now, what you're obeying, what I'm obeying right now is prevent, preemptively preparing for future storms. And he said the storms are going to happen. It's not optional. The storms are going to happen. And my obedience today is going to protect me for the future. And that's what he wants. And I've, I've been a pastor for 12 or 13 years now. I've walked with people during crises. And the ones that we're very, very consistent and obeying God and so forth. Not perfect, but a consistent, obeying the Lord. They go through a storm that's pretty massive versus someone that has not been doing that. I'm telling you from experience, completely different experience that I'm, that I'm going through with them. Totally different outlook, totally different. Everything is different. And even when you have done, you know, obeyed God and so forth and all of that, I'm not saying it's not difficult and heart-wrenching and all those things. But he really does help us when we build our lives upon a rock by obeying him for these future storms. And that's what God wants for us. He doesn't want any of us to, to get in these storms and go, I wish I was obeying, I wish I was obeying, I, was, I haven't been obeying. He wants us to have been obeying so that we will withstand that storm. It's his loving heart, his Father's heart towards us that we withstand that storm, those storms that are coming our way. Verse 28. And so it was... When Jesus had ended these sayings, that the people were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one having authority and not as the scribes. So again, he started out with disciples, but notice in the middle of 28, it says, when he ended these sayings, that the people were astonished. It was beyond his disciples. People had, had come now, and he says he, t- he taught as one with having authority, not as the scribes. The scribes would quote other rabbis. So, that he, you know, they just wouldn't teach this is what's true. They would just quote other rabbis. But he said, you have heard it in times past, but I say to you, that's, <laughs> that's speaking with authority. And so 
That's how he did the Sermon on the Mount. He's going to continue now in his public ministry. I'm very excited to see what he's going to have for us as we study that. Let's pray. Father, we just thank you for your word. We thank you for how amazing it is. And I just pray you'd help us to be obedient to what you show us every week, every day, as we are immersed in your word. May Calvary Chapel Manteca be known for your glory as a church that obeys your word. Protect us from those future storms, Lord, through that. Thank you that you provided a way for us to be protected through through obedience to you. And right now, as I'm praying, if there's anyone here, you have never given your life to Christ, I want to pray for you. And I want to speak to you for a moment as we continue in an attitude of prayer. I want you to listen to me. Maybe you're visiting, maybe you're new. You don't become a Christian by being a good person, by believing in God, by being religious. You become a, a Christian by having a spiritual birth. So you may have been religious. You may have gone to church. You may have all those things, but your life is not what you know it needs to be. God's been speaking to you, and you know that you need to get right with him. You need to have a spiritual birth. You need to ask him to forgive you of your sins. You need to ask him to um, give you the free gift of eternal life. Because we are all sinners. We've all been less than perfect. We've all sinned against God. And he took that punishment for us on the cross, the wrath that we deserved, so that we wouldn't have to try to earn it. We could never earn it. We can never outdo or outperform all the sin that we've committed. So we put all the wrath that you deserve and I deserve on Jesus, on that cross. So if we look to him and we trust him alone to pay our way to heaven and place our faith in him as death, burial, and resurrection, and we turn to God, we make that U-turn. We get off the broad road, we get on the narrow road, we turn to him and surrender our lives to him. He will come in and make our lives completely different. And if by the Holy Spirit you know that that's you and you need to do that today, I want you to raise your hand right now so I can pray for you. Anybody here? You know that you need to make that decision. You've never done that. You've never received Christ. Never had your sins forgiven. Just raise your hand. You need to make, give an opportunity. Okay, let's pray. Father, we just thank you, Lord, that everyone here knows you. We just pray you would give us a great day today at the baptism. Help us to enjoy one another and celebrate with those that have had their lives changed coming together as a family, enjoying fellowship and enjoying all these wonderful things that you've done in our lives, Lord. We just pray that you would bless us throughout this whole day and help us to be rested up and ready to, have, to experience all that you have for us later tonight. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.